just pick one thing, be proud of it, be good at it, clarify your message, you know, double down on what that product or service offering is. And the reality is if you do a good job of it, it's profitable. You, you've got client retention and people, it's so good that people are willing to stand in line and wait for it. Yeah. Then growth and scale becomes easy. What's shaking? Welcome back to All In. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. And if you're a managed service provider, an MSP, or you're a general entrepreneur today, you're going to want to listen to this because you're going to be inspired and you're going to have action steps coming out of this episode today, which means you're also going to want to take the action of sharing this with at least three people you know. So start to think about that because we don't promote the show, we don't run ads, and we don't take sponsors. The only way that we help more people is with your help. And my guest today, ready for this, grew up in Haiti with no electricity and 15 years later became a serial entrepreneur and scaled a business from nothing to number four on NASDAQ. That's an incredible story that we're going to dive into and we can do a bunch more, but that's all I think we need to start. So welcome, Brian Saley. What's up, buddy? Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm pumped. We've known each other for a little while because of the mastermind group that we've been a part of. And we've had some good conversations over the course of the last year or so. And soon we're going to share that drink together because that's not water, just to have a good time. But man, I, prior to this, out of all of our conversations, dude, I did not know your backstory about growing up in Haiti. You know, because we've always talked about how you had a managed, how you owned a managed service provider, an MSP. You had a, a cloud computing platform as well. You sold those, right? And of course, your success with NASDAQ. But man, no electricity in Haiti? What's that about? Yeah, kind of crazy. I, I grew up in a third world country in Haiti. <laughs> yeah. So my, my mom was there a total of 19 years. She was there uh, nine years doing medical, medical work um, with kids. Uh, my dad and then uh, yeah born and raised and lived there for eight years so essentially can say i grew up in haiti goodness man what was that like there i mean because she was doing medical work right you know probably non-profit or something like that and right yeah that, that's typical for for at least our race to be within haiti you know because i was thinking it's like you definitely don't look like you're from haiti you know let's just be honest in the straight truth you know especially with your right. professional background and how well you carry yourself now it's like you don't look like you grew up in a hut with no electricity but you did right that's crazy dude. Did. yeah it is crazy you know it's kind of funny how the mind works to me at least is i only remember the good not the bad so it's a tough place to live, obviously, but you know, I, I only have the good memories of being a kid. Um, I remember playing with my friends and my dad building me toys and I remember four wheeling and, you know, um, on the weekends we take the four wheeler down to the, to the coast and my parents could buy lobster for like pennies, right? Lobster was so common there. You know, it was like, I don't know, water here, right? <laughs> here, here, lobster is expensive down there. It's not, you know, so I remember the good things. I remember friends, family, you know, uh, eating mangoes, all that stuff. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough place to live. And we, while my dad built our first house, we actually lived in the mud hut for about six months. And my parents had to put netting around my crib to keep the rats out at night. So they couldn't eat into the, the netting until we moved into our, 
cement block house. So it's pretty crazy. Wow, that is, man. You know, and, and as I'm looking at you and as I'm hearing your story too, it makes a lot more sense now to to me because it, knowing you for around a year or so and understanding all the amazing things you've been able to accomplish, you know, but yet you're so down to earth and grounded about it all too. So I'm, it's a definitive compliment to you and I appreciate your approach on everything. Well, thank you. I mean, to be honest, it, it makes me weird. Um, I guess we're all, we're all weird at some level, but Hopefully, what I try to do is turn me. that into... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I am weird, but I turn that into um, being disruptive. And a lot of the things that I do today with my own businesses and helping others is helping them disrupt. And frankly, part of it of disruption is looking at things differently. And I actually do think that being raised in Haiti, like I didn't have the things around me that my current 30 year old friends had when they were zero to eight. I think it does actually give me a little bit of a lens to look at things differently. And I, I think maybe I solve problems differently. I connect the dots differently. And so I just try to harness that disruption for good, hopefully, and, and trying to help people grow and scale their business. I dig that, man. That's a good approach. I um, I share a similar story. And we've never really talked about this too. And actually, here's a story that I've never even said on air before on any of these episodes. I grew up very, very poor, not without electricity, you know, but the only thing my parents ever really fought over was money because things were always tight. My dad was an insurance salesman for life insurance, term life in the ghetto. I'm talking like he would literally go around and collect cash, you know, get get held up at gunpoint at times for, for the cash that he carried and still only made somewhere between like 35 and 40k a year that's it and that's all my family really lived on you know but yet just like you i remember all the good things you know all the times that he came to every single one of my baseball games and i remember conversations around money and asking it's like why don't i get an allowance you know and my dad's like well would you rather have an allowance or us to shoot for things that you really want to do and have that always be available to you and again it's a different perspective right Mm -hmm. (laughs) which he had which he taught me was that disruption and then i remember carrying that over into uh my freshman and sophomore year of high school in the the cafeteria because i didn't not want uh, I did not want to have like homemade lunches, right? I always wanted to have a little something extra and everything, but we were so poor that we couldn't. So I got a job cleaning the trays. Like I volunteered to get the jobs and the payment for that was actually, you would literally work for one of the school lunches every single day. So then I would still bring in from home the sandwich that I would make and eat that, but then I would sell the lunch tickets. I mean, just an entrepreneur in that, in that moment too, I would sell the lunch tickets so I could go buy whatever I wanted after that, you know, or I'd start to barter some things and I learned what kids wanted and what they didn't want. Cause then I could also throw in the deal and add, like do like a value stack for them. It's like, well, I got some awesome chips today. What about that? And a lunch (laughs) and a lunch ticket. Little bump offer there. Yeah, exactly. You know, but that was, (laughs) it was disruption. You know, it's the same thing. Thing, you know, how, how do you change the scenario that you're in and do it sure. for the, a way that's of betterment for anything you're going after? Dude, I, I, I love you, man. You're awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for it. allowing me to share that story, too. Thanks. So, from this, that must have been interesting. You remember the four wheeling, you remember all the, the, the good times with your friends. You know, when did you come? You were there for eight years. When did you come back to the States or come to the States? Yeah, so fast forward a couple of years. Um, yeah, when we left Haiti for similar nonprofit work, we ended up uh, going over to Russia for four years. So that's the other reason wow. that I think differently is if it is warmer than 70 degrees or say 60 degrees, I think in Fahrenheit, 
But if it's colder than 60 degrees, I think in Celsius, because in Haiti, it never got colder than 60. <laughs> and in Russia, it never got warmer. <laughs> <laughs> so we were in Russia for four years. I went to school in my grade level. And um, yeah, fast forward to your answer is uh, I came back when I was about 13, 13, 14. So I was a teenager. Um, back to the U.S. and then have been mostly in the U.S. since then. Yeah, so most of your childhood then, if I'm tracking the years right, it was pretty much from like age one, right? Because <laughs> hey, you weren't yes. born in Haiti, correct? I was, yeah. Were. I was born, born, oh, cool. born in Haiti. Yeah, born in a little hospital in the, the Northwest Peninsula. Wow. So you didn't uh, actually come into the United States until you were about 13. Well, so we traveled, right? So my my parents were American and still are. Uh, so we, we traveled back and forth and we'd uh, be on a puddle jumper over to, to Miami. So we would fly back and forth um, as needed every couple of years. But um, yeah, I was born, literally born in a hospital in Haiti at zero. Goodness. When you came to the States at 13, man, to, to be here full time, really, what were your thoughts around the country compared to where you had been? <laughs> you know, it's got to be almost like a shell shock. It was a shell shock. Uh, yeah. You know, in some other countries, you either go to the store and buy bread or not buy bread. And, uh, you know, you come back to the U S and it's like, you buy bread and it's like, well, do you want whole weed? Do you want rye? Do you want this? And you look at the shelves and it's just amazing. You know, it's everything from store school. Everything was, was totally, uh, totally different. I, I remember my very, very first time I came to the U S to my memory was when I was three, I think. Um, and I still remember that cause I've just gone through that with my, my three-year-old is I remember being super impressed by the lines on the road and like asking my dad a thousand questions. Like, what are these yellow lines for? What are the white lines for? Cause I had never seen a road before. Like everything in Haiti was dirt. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no pain. So lines remember, dirt. Yeah. My parents are probably like, we need to stop with a thousand questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That shows your curiosity though, too, man. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were 13 and I mean, how old are you now? I should ask that. I'm trying to do the math. Yeah, so I'm th 30, 36 now. Okay. Yeah, 36 now. So when you, it wasn't long after that then. So it was probably in your early 20s or something like that when you actually really started into business, right? Like a young, young. <laughs> yeah, I remember coming back actually right around 13. And I, I had piqued my interest for computers in Russia. And it was a family friend. And it was somebody who was like this wizard on computers. And I was really just intrigued with it. And uh, I think my family had gotten something early, you know, kind of an NT windows NT series type thing. I just remember like sitting there, I forget what city we were in Russia, maybe Moscow, like just trying to figure out like code and computer came back to the U S and I remember that AOL and CompuServe were just hitting pipes with dial up modems. And I remember sitting at my grandma's house still trying to like understand like what the internet is. And I don't think a lot of people really knew at all what the internet was capable at that of. Point, at, that no. point. at that point, it was just freaking chat rooms and AOL instant messenger, right? That's what they thought the internet was. Yeah, exactly. So that actually piqued my entrepreneurial interest. And when I was a teenager, I found out that I can make um, pretty good money mowing lawns. So probably like most of us, I, I would mow lawns and I, I made good money mowing lawns. But as soon as I found out I could answer computer questions, I started doing more of that. So I actually got into entrepreneur, you know, consulting, if you will, because it was, hey, Brian, we need help with our dial-in modem or Brian, can you help with this? And so I wouldn't really call it a business 
necessarily because uh, my parents had to drive me around, you know, both with the lawnmower and with computer repair. <laughs> but I, my technology interest was peaked um, right around the year 2000. I, I remember 2000. I remember um, the dot-com bust and I was in the midst of just really hands-on Windows NT 95, you know, DOS, you know, learning yeah. a little bit of, of code and batch files and, Oh my goodness. You have so much fun with batch files. I don't know if you ever oh played around gosh, with them back in the day, awesome but batch files, dude, for days, <laughs> for sure, man. I, I, it was more like around the, we're going to get really nerdy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Cause this was like in 1995, 96, something like yep. that when MS DOS was, so, you yep. know, cause that's really when windows came about. Right. But even before then, I, even when windows was around because windows still existed in 95, 98 and millennium, or if it was that when windows, Windows Millennium, Windows ME, that was it, wasn't it? ME, yeah, it was a little bit of a bomb, I think. Yeah, just a bit. But those, you remember, existed as a layer on top of MS-DOS. They Mm -hmm. still required MS-DOS to run, so MS-DOS was the operating system, and then this was just a graphical interface that booted up after that. So I would spend days in batch files, you know, because, again, poor family growing up, right? And I would get secondhand computers because I had a friend that existed as like a big brother, big sister kind of program thing with me, and he's the dude that helped me learn how to even build them from a hardware perspective. So then I'd get the new computer, and I'd have fun with batch files to load things I don't know if this is too technical for where you're at you probably get this to where I would load things to make it faster to take it from regular conventional RAM that block a conventional RAM which was 640k and lower and move it Mm -hmm. into high memory or that way you could free up because that was like the it was almost like that kind of RAM was like the the toolbox right and then conventional RAM was the desk that you were working on right then which is where Windows would live and all this other stuff and it, but that's where I had the fun in batch files is I started like maneuvering stuff around before Windows would even start up and then also doing some fun things like menu programs and all this other stuff. But yeah, you could get lost in there for days, dude. Exactly. Well, that's the first company I did is I, I transitioned that into web development. And when I was probably 16, 17 in high school, I actually made a lot of money doing uh, used car dealership websites. Um, running on Linux and doing some e-commerce stuff. And uh, that's actually the first company I started and sold. I sold it while I was still in high school, not for a big number, but I was getting, I had literally dozens of web hosting clients that I had up and running, running on a Linux server in my dad's home office in our basement. We landed in North Carolina. So I, I spent my high school years in North Carolina and um, we had a static IP to the house and dual internet. And I was doing my own little data center wow. in, my, in, my, in my dad's office and ended up selling that company when I went to college just just because I couldn't maintain it. I wasn't going to be there anymore. But uh, that, that kind of started my entrepreneurial, you know, effort around computers and, and MSP and um, fell in love with it. And, you know, been doing some level of it ever since. Yeah, for sure, man. When did you start your MSP? You know, in traditional, you're, you're talking like IT services and support <clears throat> MSP, right? Yes, yes. I sold I sold the web company probably when I was roughly 17. Don't fact check me. It's been a while, but finishing up high school, and I think started the MSP officially around junior senior year with two uh, two adults that were you know not in school. And we did full service MSP. So we did hands-on, we did device management, we dropped in T1s, um, you know, computer, everything. We did dentists, lawyers, offices, um, 
you name it, nonprofit organizations. Um, and that was kind of the first full MSP that I did. Had a lot of fun with it. Um, I did uh, phone systems. I, I found out I could run Linux and Asterisk and drop in a T1 card on a 1U chassis, put my own logo on it and throw it in a rack and basically have a full PBX system that, you know, would vie with Cisco or anybody else out there. Um, so yeah, I did, I did that probably end of, end of high school, then transitioning into college. That's awesome. Well, that young too. Where'd you find the dudes that, uh, that you partnered with? With the MSP, because you said they were older, obviously. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just just connections in North Carolina. Yeah, so just just being connected in that area. I was in a pretty small town uh, near Charlotte, and um, not that big of a world. So if you needed help or connected with people, um, ultimately got some people together and said, "Hey, there's a business opportunity," and um, you know, turned it into a full full uh, MSP. That's cool. My uh, my year out of high school, directly out of high school, I partnered with one individual too, and he was well older than me as well. But again, it was just local connections, and we were installing cable modems at the time because it, it was actually less expensive for the cable companies to outsource the in-home installation part than actually build up their own services division, which is what you know Comcast or or Time Warner or any of those have today. They have that in-house, of course, because they're just giants now. But back before, there was these huge, they're really monopolies. Let's just call it what it is, right? For the cable companies sure. that, that exists right now. It's If you're in the Chicago area or many states, it's Comcast. It's the only option you have for cable. That's it. It's a right. freaking monopoly. But before that happened, it's like each individual town almost kind of, they had licensing rights in municipalities and they had their own cable providers. So for these little regional cable providers who are doing high-speed internet now, I would install those. So, I mean, for an 18 mm-hmm. 18- year old i would you know have my full-time job loading up servers at the time for merrill lynch and doing these huge branch rollouts that's how i cut my teeth was in the enterprise space but then at night i would moonlight installing cable modems in people's homes for literally a hundred dollars a pop you know so i'd have five or six of these lined up because it would take me 15 minutes that's it and make an extra five to six hundred bucks a night every single week for about three nights a week it was it was fantastic dude (laughs) That's a no-brainer. And were you doing that from referrals and just... Yeah, that's all it was. You'd start to get in with the cable companies and they're like, well, you guys know how to do it. Could you have the availability? It's like, yep, we sure do. You know, because it was really only two of us that were in the company, but same as you, you know. We formed the relationships with three local cable providers and then we would just go out and install them. Because still at that point, it was a newer technology. You know, even to where the cable modems were one way. I don't know if you remember those, but the coax was coming in for the download so you'd get the high speed, but the outbound was a modem, a dial-up modem connection. The upstream was a a modem connection inside because it, it's still the same today how you have download is asymmetric to upload with, with all the cable and unless you've got google fiber or something like that that's a different story sure now that must have been around the time transitioning out of t1s or was dsl still pretty pre- prevalent then as well? It, DSL was just too slow at that time, you know, okay. for those things because cable was the next best thing that was around and Roadrunner was one of the companies that was around at that point too and I remember that but then these local cable companies is who I formed the relationships with to be able to do this. But yeah, T1s were on their way out pretty much at this point. This was around uh, 98, 99, 1998, 1999. Okay. So really right before the dot-com crash 
is when the high-speed nice. internet really started taking a foothold in a lot of the communities across the U.S. But uh, we got history, man. Look at that. We, we've cut our chops in Absolutely. this history, right? Yeah. I love it. No wonder we bond. <laughs> I know, right? So when did you sell your MSP? Well, so this is my success, failure, success. So the, the web company I sold, the MSP I ended up shutting down. Um, so I moved out of state for college but and I kept it going for no about revenue, a year. Close its doors. Yeah, we ended up having to shut it down. The basically my my partners that were trying to keep it going while it's out of state couldn't do it. Um, no, you know it just didn't work out overall. Like it kind of needed the whole the whole team. So I was you know I had to pick my priorities. Right, I had to pick my priority with with college. Which I'm still glad I did that and um, ended up just essentially closing it. Um, not in terms of like bankrupting or dropping it, but just peer, uh, instead of adding customers, we just transitioned people away and say, Hey, you know, we, we're not able to come and do hands-on manage whatever. Um, and so that ended up just kind of, you know, frittering away during college. Um, although I did keep some great relationships with some of my clients, which helped me restart about three years later. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just went door knocking back to people that, that knew and liked me from before. Um, but yeah, that one just ended up getting shut down. Interesting. So that one shut down, but then it was another MSP that you started after that three years later. Yes. So that became my cloud company. Yes. That was the foundation of my cloud, my cloud company, which is the the longer version of the story. Is that Reviora? Yes. It's Reviora. Awesome. Cool. So what was the, is that the one that was like number four on NASDAQ? Yeah. So, uh, if you want to dive, do you want me to dive into that? Let's uh, dive into that because you started it? it from scratch. For, th- this is what I'm picking up, anyways, right? You started it from scratch, really, with a couple of clients. It's it's sounding like my story, really, <laughs> you know, where, where I'm at. Because when I started does, my yeah. MSP, it was really just like two or three people that I had helped in a previous business that was like, yeah, we'll go with you wherever you go, whatever you want to do. Launching the MSP and now going public with it, you know, you start yours became a cloud company, of course, but that's why I'm seeing the similarities here, my man. <laughs> right. So, yeah. How did it, it became your cloud company? But you started it. What was that transition? You know, because if you started saying, "Hey, I'm going to provide you IT support," how did you become cloud? And what type of cloud? Sure. Well, I started at Riviera after I graduated college. I did college. I just went for for global economics and business, nothing technology. I'm so glad I did that because I feel like that gave me the foundation for running a business. And so when I graduated, went back to North Carolina, um, was just literally networking, picking up the phone. And one of the first clients I walked in on, uh, they were still running my phone system or it it never crashed one single time. (laughs) And they just got a round of capital and um, basically hired me on the spot. But they had a couple of business ventures. And um, I still remember them saying, hey, we want to hire you as our CIO, but we don't really want you as an employee. Can you do it as your own business and entrepreneur? Sure. I'll do it as my own business. So they actually figured out later. (laughs) Exactly. So, and I'd done a couple of businesses and I had a little bit more business knowledge and made a lot of mistakes and, you know, figured out what worked and what didn't work. And so within, within a couple of days or a week, I don't remember what it was, you know, came up with a new name, went and got that LLC kind of stood up that, that entity, um, reviewer, which became, became an MSP. And um, they had offices in uh, the Charlotte area. They also were in uh, Tampa as well. And so that MSP, they needed everything. They needed, uh, you know, video conferencing, you know, point to point MPLS. They needed 
you know, dozens of computers. So it, it just kind of launched full service, like within two to three months of that company being stood up. Um, we were off to the races doing everything that MSPs do, you know, hands-on tech support, yeah. email, hosted exchange, all that. And, um, to answer your question on the transition, it was about six months in that I got a phone call from somebody else that I knew that said, Hey, we have this, you know, other client and they are running 400 users of Microsoft Dynamics, uh, NAV. So if, if anybody's familiar with the Dynamics stack, there's like five different versions of Dynamics. Four of them are accounting products. One of them is CRM. So this is one of the accounting products. And they were in a, um, which I won't name the data center, but they were in a data center uh, somewhere in the U.S. that was not backing up their service, <laughs> not, not providing support. And they literally were within 90 days of their contract being expired. And it was kind of like that 911 call of like, Brian, can you please help us? And I was very transparent. I, I told them, hey, I got this new business. I've got the time. I've got the staff. Um, but we don't have a data center. And um, my point of contact there was was amazing for, for multiple reasons and ended up being a bit of a mentor to me. But he's like, get it done. Uh, the first quote that I gave him, he was like, no, you're wrong, double it. Wow. And I was like, okay. Uh, so I doubled my quote. <laughs> and That's we went and grabbed, grabbed a rack in um, uh, a server rack, by the way, in Charlotte. And we set up an entire... VMware data center running on IBM blade centers, you know, storage, store server, um, windows. We put Citrix in, we set the whole thing up in 90 days and moved 400 accounting users over on NAV successfully up and running. And then here's my, you know, my, my interesting moment is then I did nothing. And I went back to being what I was doing, which was, I was chopping all over, fixing phone system stuff. So fast forward about two or three years, I had this amazing client that was sitting there paying me five figures a month, um, which was a cloud, by the way, even though the word cloud didn't exist. Yep. And I remember my dad taking me out to, um, to uh, dinner and we went to out to an Outback Steakhouse and he's a brilliant, brilliant man, uh, not a businessman, right? He's never been business. Uh, he's an engineer, doctorate, brilliant guy, but uh, not, not a tech guy necessarily. But he asked me, he's like, you know, Brian, you're struggling, you're struggling with cash flow, you're struggling with scaling, you're struggling with travel, hiring people, all this stuff. He's like, you do have this one client, there's 400 users of NAV and they pay you every single month <laughs> and they don't crash. Why don't you go get more of them? And it was kind of that aha, like the moment of, oh, dad, yep, yeah, you're, you're right. I should, I could literally go get like one more client that would be a data center client and it could replace 20 of these, you know, mom and pop yeah, deals that I was chasing around. And so that was a turning point for me is decision at that time to essentially drop everything else. In business. Um, not overnight, of course, but we basically stopped marketing and selling everything else we do. And we said, you know, what? we're going to be the best in the world at Microsoft Dynamics NAV 2009 R2. And literally it was almost like a mindset shift is we looked around the world and we, we found out that we were the biggest hosting company in the world that we knew of because nobody has in their accounting team. Like yeah. you think of the NASDAQ companies, you might have 20 or 30 or 50 accounting people, but 
you don't have 400, right? 400. Yeah. And so we had 400. And so we, we quickly went out and, and bumped up our statuses and, and we ended up paying, I remember the exact number, thousands of dollars in R and D money from Microsoft within, within a couple months. They were like, yeah. Look, look, the, they, they cool things around that. The V was coming up. They were just testing Hyper-V and uh, we basically, you know, started pivoting and it wasn't that we dropped our other customers by any means, but they kind of faded away and we, we came up with a hosted data brand. Uh, we called it HD because we thought that was really cool. And about a year after that, Microsoft and Google started calling it cloud computing. And I still remember thinking, it's kind of a dumb name if you think about it, like cloud, like, but okay, if they're going to spend a billion dollars marketing and I'll call it cloud. And so we then pivoted, or we didn't pivot. We, we just said we did cloud, even though we already did cloud before. We'd been doing it for years. Um, but we really got into the multi-tenant, elastic, scalable, scalable side of, of uh, private cloud. That's incredible. You almost were kind of like the proving ground for Azure, from what it sounds like, especially with the R&D yes. money that you got from Microsoft. That's incredible, man. We we actually we actually one of uh, at one point we were one of less than ten MSPs in the world that had a private version of Azure slash Hyper V before Microsoft even released it. That's amazing! Wow, that's a, that's just incredible. I, I understand. There's a couple things that I'm picking out, of course, for the MSP crowd that's listening, right? Because it, there's a lot of there's three things really. One, the quote that you were talking about, right? When you first landed that that whale client, your first client that was paying you five figures a month for 400 accountants to move them over for Dynamics, and you went to them and said, "Here's my quote," and the guy's like, "Double it." It's awesome that you had him in your life at that point, because I see this across the board with. Managed service providers is not really understanding your own worth and undervaluing what you really should charge because there's still people like for reach out right we're we're premium right but really I, we're premium because we're more than everybody else I actually think that we're quite valuable <laughs> you know, sure. and very fair priced for what's delivered. But I was the same way too, man, because that's how I started out. It's like block hours. And I still see those who are, you know, maybe even 20 years to my senior now that have been in the industry twice as long as I have that are still billing out at, you know, $65 an hour, $75 an hour, or they might've hit inflation three years ago. And now, Ooh, they finally bill three digits an hour, you know, <laughs> and, but that's right. still what they're doing or they're charging. I see this too, because you know, in the managed services space from packaging and pricing, everything's per device or per user, really, you know, si similar to cloud computing and where mm -hmm. ours is between, you know, 200 to $450 a month per seat to provide mm -hmm. all the cyber that we do and, and all the managed services that we do, the IT supports, there's still those that I see their pricing listed on their website saying, yeah, it's nine bucks a month per computer and, you know, like $29 a month for the server for us to manage you. Yeah, and right. I see that. It's like, well, here's your struggle. You know, that you're undervaluing yourself. But the second, the second thing I heard from you was this mindset shift, man. And just, yes. just to say... I mean, it's incredible. I, I love, and thank you for allowing me to not interrupt you in that because I get excited and I was holding my tongue because I was so excited around the things you were saying, especially this. That, and I went through this phase too, to where it's like, you know what? Why am I spending my time going after these small accounts that, you know, quite literally, uh, it, it, since I wanted to scale, that 
there's plenty of other one-man shops out there that could take care of those, and that's cool. They just might sure. not be my avatar because of the skill set and the the quality of service and the competencies that my myself and my team can bring to the table is more than what they would be able to pay for to begin with. So it's like a mismatch. Right. And it's okay. It's not saying it's not in a derogatory mode to where you're saying I'm going to shun these smaller clients because I'm too good for them. No, that's not at all. It's saying there's a better fit for them because I'm a better fit for somebody else. Right. It just happens to be somebody that pays more money. <laughs> you know, that's right. what I'm a better fit for. Well, I love the way that you, you said that is about finding that avatar. And the reality is that it's okay to do different strategies, right? you know, um, even somebody listening to us, nobody should do exactly what you're doing now or exactly what I did or whatever. Right on. The, the lesson that I learned is, is pick, pick what your avatar is, right? Pick what you're good at. You know, it doesn't matter if they're small, medium, large, yeah. you know, large isn't, um, you know, businesses go bankrupt because of, of taking on too big of contracts sometimes. Right. But the lesson I, I like to share and remind myself of is just pick one thing be proud of it, be good at it, clarify your message, you know, double down on what that product or service offering is. And the reality is if you do a good job of it, it's profitable. You, you've got client retention and people, it's so good that people are willing to stand in line and wait for it. Yeah. Then growth and scale becomes easy. And it could be cybersecurity. It could be phone systems. Like I don't care what it is. Just pick one, you know, and, and be proud of it and be good at it, and uh, you can scale and grow. Amazing advice, my man. I love that. So, how did NASDAQ come into play for you? Sure. So, just a series of events. So, we, we ended up scaling. So, uh, that kind of turnaround was probably in year three, um, which was kind of tough. I, I basically was growing through the 2008 recession, if you will. Um, and then it was a great we, time to grow, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. It was stressful. Not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, there. Uh, you picked up on my sarcasm. Know, I, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There were times that I, I still remember my parents would come over and like look at what was in my fridge, and then like go buy me food and come and put it in my fridge. You yeah, know. <laughs> yep. um, but we made it, and we, we we doubled down. So we ran about another five years, roughly. Uh, ended up with two data centers. We had a couple dozen employees. At, at that point, we scaled to tens of thousands of users, and. I had made the decision to really focus down and my team, of course, too, by the way, um, but to focus on channel. So we want a complete indirect model Hmm. with the, with the dynamics world, it's very hands-on intensive and you can't just um, implement a enterprise resource planning system. You have to design it and all that stuff. And we said, you know what, that's not us, right? We're not going to do that. We're going to go indirectly through all the consultants that implement it. So we had a really nice indirect model. Um, we had an office overseas in India. Um, so tens of thousands of users and we started getting approached from a couple of different people. Um, uh, in fact, the company we ended up selling to, uh, uh, which is public, uh, of course is Tribridge. Uh, one of the, one of the best in the nation, uh, from a Microsoft uh, dynamics consulting implementation, they were, they were very well respected. Uh, accounting, CRM, had some really cool things. And I think they actually came to us uh, three times. The first two times we said, we're not really interested in, in selling. This is really fun. Um, and I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. And I don't mean to say this like I knew with the future. That's not what I mean. But I was noticing that more public private clouds were growing. 
And I saw this trend towards public cloud. And I felt like maybe private cloud was cresting. And I saw Azure and Amazon, all these public cloud and, and certain things were becoming a race to the bottom. And, you know, storage yeah. was going from $10 a gig to $1 to one penny. And we reinvented a little bit and we found our stride and we, we were profitable and making money, but I, I kind of was concerned. So I think the third time they came around, they were a very well-respected company, great team, great leadership organization, you know, great culture fit. And um, they, did, they didn't really have hardly any channel program to speak of. And they wanted ours um, was kind of the net net. So ended up exiting to, to Tribridge and stayed on with them for two years, um, mostly in acquisition mode, which, which got, um, you know, we had a couple hundred customers that all had to get migrated and a lot of TLC and a lot of fun being on that journey. And then just from happenstance, we sold that company. That company was acquired by um, say HP Enterprises and Computer Science Corporation merged in around March of whatever year that was. And they turned around and bought Tribridge almost almost immediately. I think it was one of, one of the first acquisitions. So when I left, I technically left DXC, which was an unknown brand, but they were instantly number four because they had 70,000 employees. Um, I think their overall cloud unit was, you know, thousands of employees there. So um, it wasn't because of me. I, I was clear that too. Like I was not the CEO of DXC. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, but being on that journey was really cool because I went through those two acquisitions um, you know, from entrepreneur mode, got to work in a much larger organization than a much larger organization. Um, found out also that's not me. That's not what I'm good at. You know, I am not a publicly traded um, employee guy. Like that's not, <laughs> that's not what I'm good at. Obviously there's a lot of people that are, um, I'm that weird disruptive entrepreneur, you know? Yeah. But, um, so that was my overall, overall journey. Yeah. A lot of people have told me the same thing. It's like, Rick, I don't think you're going to be the the public CEO type. I'm like, well, I'm disruptive and I'm just, a, it's like the sneaky thing, right? I'm using the public vehicle in order to disrupt an industry. <laughs> That's, I love it. Yeah. That, it's like, well, but, you, go ahead. You yeah. know how to position and build leadership teams and, and that's what you're good at it. You know, that's why you are successful. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. So uh, your story is incredible. You know, it's just amazing to, to take that journey through it, man. And uh, I'm inspired just listening to it. What are you doing now you know, for everyone that's listening? Because uh, as of right now, you've been through these whole things. You've had an amazing exit. Where do you go from there after having an exit like that? I'm having a lot of fun, honestly. <laughs> I, I spend about half my time... Um, starting and growing businesses. So I've got my hands in a, a variety of um, different brands I've either invested in or started. And then about half my time helping other technology companies grow and scale. And I find I really enjoy, uh, maybe it's a bit of a passion project, but I like helping other tech companies who predominantly don't have a marketing department. So I'm doing a lot of marketing, yeah. um, figure out how to disrupt clarify their message, work with their leadership team to get what they need. Quite frankly, it might be capital, it might be a board, whatever it is, um, and then grow and scale. And I've got some just amazing clients, you know, doing augmented reality, virtual reality, oh, cool. um, machine learning. I mean, just the coolest stuff that I get to help them build their businesses. Um, so that's kind of how I split my time is I've got my own projects and then I, I really enjoy helping others build their businesses too. 
That's really cool. The transition, because I'm in the mode right now, because, you know, and really, uh, I had to go through some mindset shift for this, too, you know, because it was like the public company is like, is this something that I need to do? But then it came down. It's like, no, I'm just going to do this because I can, you know, because you get to the point to where you have like you, you've had the success. And then after that, it's like you've put in the work now. Now you get to dabble in only the things that you feel like doing and have fun with those, too, and help other people in the process. Right. It's, it's a lot of fun and, um, yeah, the best of entrepreneurship. Right on brother. Right on. Brian, I appreciate you. Your website is modernscale.co.co, right? It is. So that's, it's, that's my, my platform, kind of my give back, uh, platform. I'm still building it out, but it's essentially a, a resource library that I, that I hang my hat on, um, providing resources for entrepreneurs who are looking to, clarify their message, disrupt, looking for ideas. Um, so that's my my uh, platform. There's a variety of things on there uh, that, that hopefully is a help to people. That's awesome. And Instagram at executive coach. That's a kick-ass handle. <laughs> it is. I don't know how I got it. I got lucky on that one. Yeah, way to go, man. But dude, thank you for being on. This has been an incredible conversation and, and just following your journey, dude. I, I appreciate knowing you. I'm glad you're in my life. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Rick. It's been awesome. Can't wait for that drink. Yeah, right on.